antibiotics are wonderful drugs, and we've fallen into that trap because, understandably, people want to use them. Um, the challenge is working out the way to use them, which has the, the, the minimum of impact on resistance. You're listening to Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the CVR, brought to you by our very own staff and students. I'm Josie Bellhouse, a medical student doing an integrated degree in microbiology here at the University of Glasgow, and your host for this episode. As part of my undergraduate honours project, I'm working with the CVR to produce accurate, engaging and fun science communication tools, like the podcast you're listening to. The 18th of November marks European Antibiotic Awareness Day, a campaign run by the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control to promote awareness of antibiotic resistance and the responsible use of antibiotics as a method to combat it. In today's episode, we speak with Neil Ritchie, a clinical lecturer at the University of Glasgow and infectious diseases clinician in Glasgow's new Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, about the fundamentals of antibiotic resistance, its history and its future. We also speak to Pablo Mercier and Seema Nickbash, researchers at the Centre for Virus Research, whose work on the diagnosis and epidemiology of viral infections may be able to contribute to reducing antibiotic resistance by better understanding how and when viruses can cause respiratory illness. So to start us off, could you tell us who you are and the work that you do here in Glasgow? Yep, okay, so I'm Neil Ritchie. I'm a clinical lecturer at the University of Glasgow in infectious diseases, which means that I split my time between the university where I teach and do a bit of research and working as a, as a doctor in the infectious diseases department. How did you end up working in that field? Well, I went to university and did a medical degree and then decided to work in the field of infectious diseases because it interested me and because I think it's an area of medicine where there's an opportunity to um, make a difference and intervene with people who maybe don't always have good access to healthcare. So that was what attracted me to it and then I decided to do some research and um, did some research in the thing that really interests me most of all which is bacterial infections and um, people with uh, complicated um, complicated medical problems related to that. Could you explain for us in simple terms what antibiotic resistance is and why it tends to be poorly understood? Okay, well, antibiotic resistance is an ability that some bacteria have to um, avoid being killed by the antibiotics that we use every day. Um, And it's a problem because it means that when someone gets an infection, the antibiotics that we might use to treat them might work less well or might not work at all. Um, I think the common misconceptions that people have about antibiotic resistance are, first of all, that it's an entirely human-created problem, and I think we're going to talk probably in a few minutes about ways in which humans have added to it, but antibiotic resistance has always been there, um, but it's been made more common by human actions. Um, And I think the second main misconception that people often have about antibiotic resistance is this idea that people can become resistant to antibiotics. So people don't become resistant to antibiotics, but the bacteria that live inside people um, become resistant. And um, a human body contains such a large number of bacteria, an uncountably large number of bacteria, usually in the nose and in the gut, that um, there's a lot of material there for resistance to develop. So um, 
And so if an antibiotic doesn't work, it's not because something's changed about the person, it's that something's changed about the bacteria that live in the person. So there are two main areas of antibiotic use in medicine and in agriculture where I think it was noticed that they can be used to increase the growth rates of livestock. And we're starting to understand the scale of the problem of antibiotic resistance in medicine, but are people as concerned in agriculture as they are in medicine? Um, so certainly people working in farming and agriculture are concerned about it. Um, I think it's more of a problem for us in human medicine because I think the impact of antibiotic failure is much greater. So in humans, if antibiotic resistance develops, and particularly if um, the kind of very difficult to treat antibiotic resistance, um, like the, the bacteria that have been in the news more recently called CPEs, if they become widespread, then we run the risk of running into real difficulty treating people with everyday medical problems. And um, that has potentially catastrophic effects. Um, on our ability to provide good quality healthcare, not just for people with infections, but when we're treating people who, um, whose treatment leaves them vulnerable to infections. So, for example, treatment for cancer, um, treatment for um, arthritis, like, bone, like um, hip replacements and knee replacements, all of those things would be made much, much harder if um, antibiotic resistance continues to become more widespread. In agriculture, you're right, um, antibiotics allowed farmers to farm more intensively and to generate um, higher quality yields from their intensive farming and so antibiotics were a big benefit to agriculture in terms of its profitability. If antibiotic resistance becomes widespread and it has become widespread in agriculture then there'll be some impact on that yield but um, the main issues that we see societally about um, agricultural use of antibiotics relate to the spread of resistance to um, to humans and um, and so that's why I think and um, government intervention and regulatory body intervention is required to improve the situation in um, agriculture so that um, so that that can feed through into into the population at large I think that's taking place but clearly we need to do more to try and reduce the, the number of antibiotics that are used in particularly in intensive agriculture We've known about antibiotic resistance for a long time. In 1945, Alexander Fleming warned us about resistance specifically in his Nobel Prize speech. So why have we fallen into the trap that Fleming predicted such a long time ago? Okay, well, I'll explain a little bit about why antibiotic resistance has always been around, first of all. Um, and it relates to where antibiotics come from. So when Fleming discovered penicillin, he discovered it essentially by accident, by discovering that... Um, a particular mould, penicillium, produced a substance which became known as penicillin that could um, inhibit the growth of bacteria around it. And one of the things that I became interested in through my research is uh, looking at how bacteria live together when they colonise um, animals. And one of the features of bacteria living together in colonisation is that they often produce substances which affect other bacteria around them in order to clear a bit of space for them to have their area of the of the of the animal of the of the colonization site and these substances are often antibiotics so bacteria have been exposed forever to antibiotics because they're substances that are produced by other bacteria and fungi eh, in order to clear a space for themselves and so resistance is there simply because bacteria had to counter that it's an arms race in evolutionary terms between bacteria which produce antibiotics and bacteria which can resist antibiotics so resistance has always been there. Why have we fallen into the trap of 
um, increasing resistance. Well, partly because antibiotics are such great drugs. The antibiotics have had a profound impact on people with severe infections. So prior to the development of penicillin, if you had a pneumonia, and that was a severe pneumonia with um, the bacterial cause entering your blood, your chances of dying were about 90%. After penicillin treatment, your chances of dying were reduced to around 20%. So a very substantial benefit. Um, these days, if a new treatment comes onto the market in medicine and we think that one person in 50 might have their life saved, we would regard that as being a very highly effective treatment. We're talking about a treatment which saves the life of 50% of the people that you give it to in that context. And that's the kind of medical advance that we can only dream of today. So antibiotics are wonderful drugs and we've fallen into that trap because understandably people want to use them. Um, the challenge is working out the way to use them which has the, the, the minimum of impact on resistance and um, that's a difficult thing to do. The CDC lists CPEs, C. diff and the bacteria that causes gonorrhea as its top three urgent threats in terms of antibiotic resistance. So what's different about these pathogens and why are they so dangerous? Okay, well, they're different in slightly different ways. Um, so I'll maybe talk about them one at a time. Gonorrhea is a particular concern for us at the moment because it has shown a remarkable ability to rapidly adapt to the bacteria that we use to treat it. And so each new antibiotic that's been deployed against gonorrhea over the years, we've seen widespread resistance develop within a few years of use. We've now reached the point where our modern treatment, which is to give a combination of an injection therapy and a tablet therapy, we're now starting to see failures because of resistance in clinical practice. And that was reported for the first time in the New England Journal of Medicine earlier this year. And what we're faced with is the prospect of gonorrhea becoming untreatable um, because it's a sexually transmitted infection and is able to spread through the population very quickly. Um, untreatable gonorrhea would represent a really serious threat to public health and um, could have really, really difficult consequences um, for how we maintain good sexual health in the, in the community. Um, CPEs are another very major concern, particularly for hospital-based doctors. CPEs are um, common bacteria like E. coli that can cause urinary tract infections or gallbladder infections, um, but they've acquired the ability to resist almost every antibiotic that we have available. So a typical CPE might be resistant to all of the, the group of antibiotics, which includes penicillin, the beta-lactam antibiotics, it might also be resistant to the other commonly used bugs that we use to treat urinary tract infections like ciprofloxacin. And so if someone comes into hospital unwell, then we're faced with the prospect of either having to use our second line therapy, um, our less preferred options, which are more toxic and um, don't treat the infection as effectively. Or in some cases, we even find resistance to those and we're faced with the prospect of having genuinely untreatable infection in people who are extremely unwell in intensive care units in hospitals and um, that's a very frightening prospect for us because we've become used over the over the years to essentially never finding ourselves in that position and again as I said earlier it has implications not just for people with infections but about how safe it becomes to do treatments that leave people susceptible so for example bone marrow transplants are a wonderful marvel of modern medicine if we find ourselves in a position where these bacteria are frequent 
And probably most people who get a bone marrow transplant start to pick up resistant bacteria for a variety of reasons uh, in the course of their in the course of their trip through hospital. It might really affect um, how beneficial those procedures are, and so the, the the effects and the effects on other similar procedures could be really very profound indeed. Finally, C diff. Um, C diff is a a bacteria that lives in the bowel, which um, has become resistant or is resistant to a wide variety of antibiotics that we use in clinical practice. And the reason C. diff is a problem is because it also produces a toxin that causes diarrhea. And so when we give antibiotics to people who are colonized with C. diff, because the C. diff is resistant, it grows and multiplies in the bowel, becomes one of the most common bacteria in the bowel, and then its toxin causes this illness, um, C. diff infection that's associated with diarrhea. And C. diff is a particular problem for people who have other medical problems, particularly elderly people with other medical problems, who, who often um, come to significant harm either because they stay in hospital for a long time um, fighting the infection or because they die of the infection. And because C. diff is so directly linked to antibiotic use, where the vast majority of people who suffer from C. diff have been given antibiotics in the recent past, it's a particular target for us because we think by changing antibiotic prescribing, we can make a big difference. And actually that's already happened in some parts of the world, including in Glasgow, where C. diff rates have fallen very dramatically after some changes in antibiotic prescribing. One of the main drivers of antibiotic resistance is inappropriate use, and that's something that European Antibiotic Awareness Day hopes to highlight. So what does the term inappropriate use mean? Well, I think we have to be very careful with our terminology. Doctors want to help people, and it's highly counterproductive to spend a lot of time criticising doctors and members of the public about antibiotic use um, when what they're trying to do fundamentally is to, is to feel better or you, you know, to, um, to, to treat patients effectively. So I think we have to be really careful about, our, about our, our terminology. And while there's no question that some antibiotic use is inappropriate, um, I think the majority of antibiotic use that we're talking about here is um, appropriate antibiotic use that could be handled better. And a big part of the, the process of this thing that's called antibiotic stewardship is around educating doctors and about providing doctors with clear guidelines and support in using antibiotics in a way that we think is less likely to um, cause problems like resistance and C. diff infection in our patients. So I spend a lot of my time visiting wards in the hospital reviewing patients who are on antibiotic therapy and talking to doctors, particularly junior doctors who are treating patients on antibiotics, and discussing how we can optimise that person's treatment um, to try and effectively manage their infection, but um, try and reduce the, the ecological impact, the impact on, on resistance and, and, and C. diff. And um, that's a really important three-pronged three um, approach. It needs infection specialists who are committed to um, treating infection as best they can. It needs non-infection specialists, which is the majority of doctors, who are prepared to be part of that process. And sometimes it's a bit inconvenient to change the antibiotic prescribing for a whole variety of reasons, and so they need to be engaged in that process. And finally, for patients, it's important that they understand why we're doing these things. A lot of the reasons why antibiotic use in the past um, promoted resistance was because often the easiest agents to prescribe for infections are what we call the broad-spectrum antibiotics, the antibiotics that treat almost all of the bacteria that we encounter. And um, there are a number of these antibiotics um, which 
are easy to prescribe and just by prescribing a single antibiotic we cover off all the bases. The problem is that it's a bit of a shotgun approach, we hit lots of things we don't mean to hit and we therefore cause a lot of ecological damage. Many of the options for reducing that, prescribing narrower spectrum antibiotics, mean using things like antibiotic combinations or antibiotics people are a bit less familiar with or antibiotics that are a bit less convenient to give and so we need buy-in from everyone including patients who need to understand why we're trying to make these changes and why we think that's the right thing to do even though it might inconvenience them a little bit. And that's, so there's an important part of engagement of other healthcare professionals and of the public involved in, in what's going on. You've been involved in some research with antibiotic stewardship in terms of implementing it in Glasgow and studying its effects. So what is antibiotic stewardship and what has your work relating to it found? Okay, so the, the vast majority of my work in antibiotic stewardship is implementing it on the ground. So antibiotic stewardship in practice means um, providing really clear guidelines for people about how they should prescribe their antibiotics, providing support for people to do that by being available to give advice and help, and by um, providing education and, um, and um, awareness to make sure that, that those changes happen. Antibiotic stewardship is about using the antibiotics that we think cause least impact on, on resistance, and that's an ongoing work in understanding how that happens. Um, what's been done in Glasgow is that um, we've started to use antibiotics in quite a different way. So rather than using the broad spectrum antibiotics I, um, I mentioned earlier on, um, what happens now is that we try to use narrow spectrum antibiotics to target the particular infections that we think are going on. One of the potential risks of that approach is that you might leave people undertreated for their infection. So by not using the, the, the most powerful antibiotics that, that we have and trying to use things that have less ecological impact, one of the concerns is that we might cause damage to patients. And so that's one of the things I've been involved in looking at is trying to look at what are the outcomes for patients with the most serious infections when we use an antibiotic stewardship um, informed approach to treat them. And um, what we found in Glasgow, which is very encouraging, is that in the period of time after we introduced the new antibiotic guidelines that we introduced a few years ago, that the um, chances of dying um, amongst people who had um, the most serious types of infections actually seemed to fall a little bit. I'm not going to try and say that that's because of the, that's because of the changes that we introduced, but importantly, the, the chances of dying certainly didn't go up. And we looked at quite a number of outcomes, things like admission to intensive care units, things like um, needing kidney dialysis, which is something which um, people with the most serious infections often require, as well as length of time in hospital and chances of dying. And in, in none of those areas did we see any impact in terms of worse outcomes for patients. So um, importantly, you need to implement an antibiotic stewardship strategy, which allows you to treat patients effectively, but also reduce things like C. diff, which as I've said, we managed to reduce in Glasgow and um, reduce um, antibiotic resistance, which has also fallen in Glasgow and, in fact, across Scotland in the last few years. As a clinician, a lot of your work involves trying to fight antibiotic resistance, but what can the average person do to help fight antibiotic resistance? Well, I think there are a couple of things that people can do. The first is, on an individual level, we can try to avoid unnecessary antibiotic prescriptions. And one of the 
big areas in which we know that antibiotics are often used unnecessarily is in the area of mild infections, which we know are usually caused by viruses and which therefore don't react, don't respond to antibiotics. So for example, coughs and colds, sore throats, which there's very little evidence antibiotics make any difference in, in, in treating. Um, and um, But yet people are still often prescribed antibiotics for them. And so on an individual level, by not looking for an antibiotic for those things, um, or by agreeing to your GP adopting a delayed prescription approach where the GP might write you a prescription but you only use it in two or three days if, um, if the infection hasn't started to get better, we can reduce the amount of antibiotic prescribing across the population and hopefully make a difference that way. And there's good evidence that if you can reduce antibiotic prescribing in general practice, that that has a knock-on impact throughout the population. Um, the other thing I think people can do is continue to raise awareness and be engaged in the problem. So one of the huge difficulties that we're encountering in modern practice is the so-called antibiotic gap. So for most of the 20th century, antibiotics were being discovered and brought to market by drug companies at a rapid rate. And for most of the 20th century, we were able to stay ahead of the curve of resistance by developing new antibiotics so that when resistance developed, we could bring in the new drug and that would um, allow us to carry on treating patients. The problem is that around the late 80s, early 90s, that rapid expansion of antibiotic numbers dried up. And in the last couple of decades, there have been very small numbers only of antibiotics brought to market that have offered us a real benefit to our patients. So the pharmaceutical industry has really struggled to develop new antibiotics. And part of that's because most of the easy drugs have been developed and so developing new drugs is much harder and more expensive, but also because stewardship practice means that there's not very much profit in the antibiotic industry. And so antibiotic and so pharmaceutical companies are less likely to risk the, the long process of developing a drug if they don't see profit. So I think people can be involved in engaging with this subject and encouraging governments, charitable organisations, others that support um, the medical industry that don't have an interest first and foremost in profit to get behind the problem and um, try and develop new drugs because I think only with a coordinated national and international approach are we really going to be able to move forward in terms of some of the new therapies which might be around the corner but we haven't been able to bring to market yet. And finally, how do you anticipate antibiotic resistance affecting your career as a clinician in the future? Well, I hope that stewardship becomes an increasingly embedded part of life. So for on, on, the, on the good side, I hope that um, we continue to engage people in the importance of stewardship and that it just becomes an entirely natural part of life, which I think hopefully is happening already. But I hope that continues and um, that we manage to reduce antibiotic prescribing where it's safe to do so. As for the negative, I think that unfortunately my future as a clinician is likely to be spending a large amount of time trying to treat patients who have these highly resistant infections. So 10 years ago CPEs were very, very rare in the UK. There were perhaps only a handful of cases reported each year. In 2015 there were over 1,600 cases of CPE reported in the UK, mostly in England and Wales, but they are now starting to arrive in Scotland as well. And those infections will be much harder to treat. The antibiotics that we use, at least at the moment, are much more toxic. 
And so I think I'm going to spend a lot of my time trying to negotiate the challenges of looking after patients with that. And it may be, if we really don't move forward, that we have to see some of our patients getting things, getting types of treatment that um, have not been used for a very long time, for example, surgical management of infection may become much more common than it is at the moment, where we have to cut out the, the, the focus of infection rather than treat it with antibiotics. I hope those things don't happen, and I hope that we're able to gain control of the resistance problem, bring new treatments to market, use our stewardship strategies to try and control the resistance that there already is, and you know, maintain effective treatment of infection in our population, but um, that might prove to be hard. We have to wait and see. I am. Um, I don't think that. Um, I think we've still got time to intervene, um, but I think it has to happen soon. Now that we understand more about what antibiotic resistance is, we'll be talking to Pablo and Sima about how their work here can potentially contribute to reducing it. As Neil mentioned, a common misconception about antibiotics is that it can be used to treat viral infections as well as bacterial ones. But as we'll discuss shortly, it can be very hard to accurately distinguish the two anyway. But if we can get a better understanding of how and when viruses cause disease in Scotland, this might not always be the case. If you could just introduce yourselves and tell me what you do here at the CBR. Okay, thanks JC. So... I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and I'm currently working as a research associate in Pablo Mercier's group. I have a background in biology and that led me onto a master's degree which was part veterinary and part human epidemiology. That led me onto a PhD where I was looking at the epidemiology of avian flu in Great Britain. And eventually that led me onto my current role where I'm studying the epidemiology of human respiratory infections. My name is Pablo Murcia and uh, I am a veterinarian with a PhD in virology. I studied uh, veterinary medicine in Argentina and I am a principal investigator here and my group studies uh, two different lines of investigation. One is what we're going to talk about today, which is human respiratory infections. And on the other hand, we study influenza cross-species transmission. There are two papers that I wanted to talk about today and the first was a huge epidemiological study on eight to nine years worth of data on respiratory viral infections mm -hmm. in NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde using PCR. So um, it's obviously a huge undertaking and what motivated you to do that work and what did you do effectively? Well, so I think um, Pablo had a collaborator, Rory Gunson, at the NHS West of Scotland Virology Centre and he was interested in looking at how patterns of um, viruses may be non-independent and then um, as a first step we wanted to look at just the basic epidemiological patterns in this data because it hadn't been looked at previously um, at such a large scale and the thing that's really novel about this data set is that First of all, it spans nine years, but also the fact that the patients were tested by multiplex PCR methods mean that it gives much more reliable and consistent information across patients for epidemiological studies because historically a lot of epidemiological work had been based on laboratory data that hadn't been tested in that way, which meant that a patient with a respiratory illness would be tested for what the clinician um, 
believed was the possible cause of the infection rather than being tested against the whole panel of viruses. And so where we have um, much more um, consistent information on the infection pattern of every single patient in the data set. And that also then gives us a wealth of information on co-infections um, in a much more reliable way than what was previously possible. So something that's mentioned quite early on in the paper is that viruses and bacteria and even fungi can cause really similar infections clinically. Um, so again, that's a reason why a lot of people end up taking antibiotics for infections that they think are caused by bacteria but might actually be caused by something else. So why can't we tell viral and bacterial respiratory infections apart? Well, the, the point is that when you, you are sick, and you go to the GP, what you are, in essence, are your a set of symptoms, mm -hmm. okay? And the uh, symptoms are very similar across all these different infections. So a, a viral infection can give you very similar symptoms as a bacterial infection. And the best way to make sure about the etiological agent of the disease is by doing uh, tests in the lab. However, this is not always possible. And uh, um, this is why most of the times, you know, you go to a GP and this is what happens to me when I take my children. They say, oh, it's a viral infection. And then my children look at me because they know I'm a virologist. <laughs> and they say, how does he know? <laughs> but uh, anyways, they, they, they have uh, doctors in general have uh, some sort of uh, uh, algorithm, you know, about how they look at the patient and they uh, discard, you know, bacterial infection uh, and in general, they cannot rule out, you cannot rule out a viral infection without a test. But um, it's actually quite difficult to tell them apart, to say what is actually causing disease. A lot of people, when they think of respiratory illness, think of colds and flu, but you had loads of virus groups that your study looked into. Um, so what did you find out, essentially? Okay, that's quite um, a tough question because we, it's a, as you can tell from looking at the paper, quite a big description. Um, so we characterised um, the relative prevalences of the viruses. As you say, there's lots of different types. And so 11 groups of respiratory virus in total, spanning, um, I think, six taxonomical families of viruses, uh, respiratory viruses. Um, so we characterise the individual patterns and so for example we find that rhinovirus is the most prevalent virus overall um, and in young children in, um, in pretty much every month of the year which is something that's not particularly surprising and so there was a set of results which pretty much confirmed what we already knew and then we had um, some more um, novel results for example our study is the first large-scale epidemiological study to incorporate um, coronaviruses which along with the rhinoviruses were historically considered to be not clinically important but in recent years with expansions in um, sort of virological testing methods we're learning more and more about the clinical relevance of different subtypes of viruses different um, species of coronaviruses and different um, clades or strains of viruses and we know that the coronaviruses and rhinoviruses are particularly important in very young um, and people who are immunocompromised for example. Um, so what we find is that when we look at the relative prevalence of the viruses over time we find that along with the influenza viruses and respiratory syncytial virus which is another virus which is a 
winter burden pathogen. Uh, coronaviruses are in there as being pretty highly prevalent along with these two other what are typically thought of as being winter uh, viruses and so it raises the question of of whether we should be thinking more about how these non-influenza viruses are contributing to the winter burden of uh, acute respiratory infections at least in in our part of the world or in the UK at least. Okay, so one of the main things that stood out to me was that you saw a general increase in the number of viral infections that people are having um, since 2005, especially in children, I think was the group that it mainly came out in, or infants. Um, so what do you think could be driving that, and is that something we should be worried about? So we don't have a clear answer to that question, um, but it is a, it's a good question, of course. It's important that we try to explain the trends that we see in these data. Um, so you're right, we saw an, an overall trend of increasing prevalence, especially in young children. Um, we can hypothesize that we think it's possibly to do with rhinovirus. So in a separate set of analyses that um, weren't actually included in that particular paper, we see that if we break down the uh, into the individual viruses, we can see that it's rhinovirus that is actually increasing over time. Um, in that age group um, particularly and so it's potentially something to do with um, rhinovirus we can we also note that there's been a change in the assay the virological diagnostic um, assay it now since 2009 it detects um, another group of genetically related um, viruses the enteroviruses and we know that elsewhere in Europe the D68 subtype of enteroviruses has been recognized as being particularly um, important clinically and so it's possible that that a rhinovirus or a related virus such as enterovirus is explaining that trend but we haven't looked at that in detail so we we don't know <laughs> and, and if i can add something uh, uh, to that answer sima uh, has already shown very nicely that uh, not only are we're finding you know more infections but we're also seeing a shift in the seasonality of certain viruses Okay, so certain viruses that circulate in particular uh, seasons during the year in the past have been shifting to, towards other seasons, and this is something that we're quite interested in, in understanding. We don't know the reasons for this. We have a few ideas, but uh, we, and we're trying to, to test them. An extra point here is to remember that this um, community of viruses are really dynamic. We can't think of them as being a static entity. They do change over time, and that's why studies such as ours, um, we believe it's important to just keep up to date with what, um, what the patterns of these viruses are as they can change, just yeah, to make sure we're on top of making sure that sort of vaccine developments and antiviral developments mm -hmm. and other public health um, measures are direct directed, obviously, to where they're most needed. And and something else about that is uh, for people who are not familiar with respiratory viruses, the, most of the viruses that we, we study are RNA viruses. And as you know, these viruses mutate very rapidly. They evolve very rapidly. So this is something that we need to take into account when we look at the dynamics of these viruses over time. Yeah. We can see even for influenza, for example, that we know that we have, um, if we break influenza down um, in more detail, we have the H1 types, H3 types. We know that over periods of 10 years, we do see changes in those, particularly when we have a pandemic such as what happened in 2009, which shifts the sort of um, the underlying viral population in a way that actually can have a dramatic impact on the epidemiological patterns 
age group distributions, etc. Yeah, it looked like that really threw a spanner in the works sort yeah. of thing in terms of analysing all the data that you had after, was it 2009 there was a yeah. pandemic? Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> yes, it was. It placed a huge burden on the laboratory um, and so the diagnostic testing, I think, became the resources just were... Um, uh, saturated? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the other things you really focused on was co-infections and which viruses um, were sort of causing disease in the same patient at the same time. But you mentioned that um, you didn't include data about bacteria in the paper. So I was just wondering if viruses and bacteria can simultaneously cause uh, an, a respiratory infection in the same way that multiple viruses can cause an infection at the same time? So we cannot answer that question be because we're only looking at viruses. We do know that, you know, uh, viruses coexist with the microbiome that you have, and we also know that uh, during certain viral respiratory infections, you end up having secondary uh, bacterial infection because viruses pave the way to bacteria to colonize. And one thing I would just add is that, um, just to point out that we, when we're talking about multiple viruses being detected in co-infections, we can't know their role actually in the manifestation of the, the illness. Um, that's one thing that our study can't tell us is whether certain combinations of viruses are causing disease more than another combination mm. or whether in fact there are background viruses such as rhinovirus which we detect um, quite frequently in co-infections mm. that may actually not really be the cause of disease it's just that it's a subclinical infection yeah. if you like. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at these viruses that co-infect um, and are causing or potentially causing disease in the same host is that important are those illnesses worse or? That's um, a really good question which um, Currently, there's not a great deal of evidence to um, support either way. Some work suggests that co-infections are important for um, generating more severe cases of illness, whereas other studies have found that there are possibly background viruses um, that, that aren't contributing to the illness in, in co-infections. Based on the work that we did, we found that Co-infections are more likely to be detected among patients attending a hospital compared with patients attending a GP practice, which kind of suggests that the possible role of the co-infections in, in more severe illness. So can we theorise that the co-infecting viruses are helping each other or is there anything to suggest they're inhibiting each other? Well, that, that is it. That is what we're trying to, to understand at the moment. So basically, we might need to step back a bit to, to understand this better. So we need to keep in mind that viruses, so viruses must be within a cell in order to replicate. And respiratory viruses can basically infect the respiratory tract. That is their ecological niche. So what our hypothesis is, is that because all these viruses share the same environment, they interact with each other. And those interactions could be positive interactions, that means that they help each other, or could be negative interactions in which they are competing or blocking each other. Or basically, they, there must be, for certain viruses, no interactions at all. 
and this I think is particularly relevant when we're looking at you know as Sima mentioned 11 different virus groups so the and the the answer to your question is we uh, found evidence of uh, interactions between viruses at the population scale in some cases those are positive in a way that when you have a high prevalence of one virus you have a high prevalence of the other virus and we also found evidence on the contrary where you have viruses that are at high prevalence and they coincide with troughs of prevalence for the other virus and uh, maybe Sima can expand a bit on that. Um, yep so just to, to add that I mean in these current analyses that, that we've been the more recent analyses we've been working on and we've been looking at the relationships between the individual viruses in a, in a lot more detail and we've found that the um, that the chance of infection with one virus can be reduced or enhanced in the presence of a of another maybe we can mention a couple of examples yeah so what what we observed is that when you have a high prevalence of influenza a viruses you have a low prevalence of rhinovirus well, and if you look at the positive relationship or a, a, what we call actually an epidemiological uh, uh, interaction is uh, when we look at uh, metanumovirus and respiratory syncytial virus they seem to uh, their their circulation patterns are are very similar so we think they have a positive epidemiological interaction okay cool so um the next paper i wanted to talk about was the paper that you worked on i think pablo which was using next generation sequencing as a tool to diagnose viral respiratory infections and sort of comparing that with the current gold standard diagnostic tool. So could you briefly explain what these tests do in terms of the viruses and why next generation sequencing might have benefits? Okay, so um, basically um, next generation sequencing as you, as you know, as you know is, is the, the latest technology to to sequence everything you, any nucleic acid that you have in a sample. And what we use is we use a particular way of next generation sequencing, which is called metagenomics, in which what you do is you extract the nucleic acids of a clinical sample and sequence everything that is there. And then you will have lots of uh, short reads of sequences, that is short strings of, you know, A, T, Gs and Cs, that will be like a big puzzle and you will use these little pieces to uh, reconstruct the genomes of the viruses that are present in the sample okay and you want to get rid of the uh, sequences that are non-viral so by doing this metagenomics approach what we are able to do is in an unbiased way is different to pcr we know what we can know what viruses are in that sample what is why is that different is because when you do PCR, you have to have primers. And as you know, primers are, are uh, nucleic acid sequences that complement the genome of the virus you're interested in. So you need to have an a priori idea of what you're looking for. Instead, by doing metagenomics, you sequence everything, then you assemble the viral genomes and you find out what you have. So one is unbiased and the other one is uh, biased. And I should say that one is less unbiased, <laughs> less biased than the other one. So um, this is quite expensive and uh, it's, it, it's labor intensive and it's very expensive in computational terms. So it takes quite a lot of effort to 
do metagenomics on a clinical sample and end up with a diagnosis. But back in the 80s, you know, thinking about doing multiplex diagnostics using PCR for respiratory viruses was unthinkable of. So this is where we think that applying next generation sequencing for the diagnosis of viral infections, it will be in the not very far future something feasible. So this is why we did this and it was a, a proof of concept study. So the ad advantage would be that obviously viruses, as we talked about earlier, are changing quite a lot and novel viruses and things come about. So the advantage is you might be able to pick up on those. So the, the advantage will be the advantage is that the, the using by using metagenomics, you, you have a way broader spectrum. So, for example, by using the multiplex tests that are currently used, you will only detect, let's say, 11 or up to 15 different pathogens. And all you will find is whether they are present or not. Mm -hmm. By doing metagenomics, you will detect any number of pathogens that are present. You, your spectrum broadens. It's not, just, it's not limited to those 11 or 15. But at the same time, you will have sequence information, which is quite important. You not only will you know it is present, but you will know which strain is present, whether it is a, a drift variant, which is important for influenza viruses, you know, whether these are viruses that are different from the vaccine, vaccine strains, or if we know about uh, virulence traits that makes these viruses more nasty, we could just by looking at the sequence say, okay, actually this, this virus uh, could cause severe outcomes of disease. So it, it, produce, it gives you way more um, information. But at the moment, they are not as sensitive as PCR approaches. Okay, cool. Um, so hopefully if we get better at differentiating viral and bacterial diseases, we can minimize the times when we're prescribing antibiotics for diseases that are actually caused by viruses and therefore the antibiotics won't work. So is antibiotic resistance something that you particularly had in mind before you started these studies? No, the, the, the quick answer to that is no. We, we didn't think about uh, antibiotic resistance, but something that is important to keep in mind is that you know the disease progression is a dynamic, you know, is is a dynamic process, and we know that viruses, uh, respiratory viruses, um, make the patient more susceptible to secondary bacterial infection. So this is something we need to take into account. With that, I'm not ascribing for, you know, antibiotic prescription on patients that only have a viral infection. But what we need to, what it would be really nice to know is whether certain viral infections or certain virus strains are more likely to result in a secondary bacterial infection than others. So that would allow us to say, actually, you know, the patient has this particular virus strain, maybe we don't need antibiotics, or maybe we need to consider, you know, a, an antibiotic treatment, you know, at a particular time because it's very likely that this patient will have a bacterial infection. But having said that, I'm a veterinarian, so <laughs> I don't want to advocate on the use of antibiotics or any therapeutic approaches in humans. Okay. Um, so what are you working on at the moment, just now? So as we um, mentioned a bit earlier, we're doing a study, quite an exciting study now, um, looking into the individual virus um, trends in more detail. It's a mixture of um, some quite simple statistics, some quite advanced statistics that allowed us to really get at um, robust conclusions of, of interactions between these viruses as being the, the explanation for the empirical observations that we see. Um, and also with some mathematical modelling simulations to test our hypotheses that 
Um, it seems to be potentially a temporary, um, broad acting, sort of refractory phase, potentially through the innate immune response or through the destruction of um, cells that happen during infection that may be causing um, an interference between these viruses that we actually observe at the population level. So it's an example of where fine scale biological phenomena can really have a big impact at the population level. And, and what we're also uh, setting up to do next is to basically look at, um, so based on the interaction between these viruses, what we think it might be happening is that uh, the, there will be selective pressures in the viruses due to these, you know, uh, epidemiological interactions between them. So what we're uh, planning to do, and we have uh, an MRC program run to do, to do it, is to we're going to sequence a hundred complete genomes for each of the respiratory viruses per year, uh, derived from patients, and uh, we will look at their evolution in in parallel to see if we can find uh, signatures of selection. Uh, between them that we could link with their epidemiological patterns. You've been listening to Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the CBR. We'd like to thank Neil, Pablo and Seema for giving us their time to tell you about their work here in Glasgow and we hope you've enjoyed it. I've been Josie, see you next time.